0: They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, prohibited by law. Terms and Conditions 18. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 130. This episode is entitled, Why Procrastination is Good for You. But firstly this week from the www.dailymail.co.uk website Does this coin found near Jerusalem prove that Samson lived and that he did fight the lion? And it's written by Leon Watson. A tiny seal has been uncovered that could be the first archaeological evidence of Samson, the biblical slayer of the Philistines. Archaeologists discovered the ancient artefact while excavating the tell of Be'at Shemesh in the Judean hills near Jerusalem, Israel. It appears to depict the Old Testament story of Samson, whose might was undone by his lust for the temptress Delilah and his fight with a lion. The seal, which measures less than an inch in diameter, shows a large animal with a feline tail attacking a human figure. The seal was discovered at a level of excavation that dates it to roughly the 11th century BC, when Israelite tribes had moved into the area after Joshua's conquest of Canaan. It was a time when the Jews were led by ad hoc leaders known as judges, one of whom was Samson. The location of the find was close to the River Sorek, that marked the boundary between the Israelites and their Philistine foes. The Daily Telegraph reported. The location also indicates that the figure on the seal could represent Samson, according to Israeli archaeologists Professor Banimovitz and Dr. Lederman. Mayit Shemesh is regularly mentioned in the Old Testament, most notably in Chapter 6 of the Book of Samuel 1, the ruler of Israel immediately after Samson as being the first city encountered by the Ark of the Covenant on its way back from Philistia after having been captured by the Philistines in battle. Alternatively, it suggests that tales of a hero strong enough to fight a lion circulated at the time of the judges, one that then morphed into the story of Samson. One of the most compelling characters in the Old Testament, Samson was said to have been given supernatural strength by God to allow him to overcome his enemies. He discovered his strength when he was accosted by a lion on his way to propose to a Philistine woman, killing it with his bare hands. At the wedding, Samson infuriates the Philistines by telling them a riddle. They threaten his new wife for the answer, which she gives them. At this, Samson flew into a rage and killed 30 Philistines. He then goes on the run and after being chased to a cave in the Rock of Edom, he kills 1,000 more of the Philistines who have come to capture him using the jawbone of an ass. He then falls in love with the woman, Delilah, at the Brook of Sorek. The Philistines approach Delilah and induce her, with 1,100 silver coins each, to try to find the secret of Samson's strength. Samson, not wanting to reveal the secret, teases her, telling her that he will lose his strength should he be bound with fresh bowstrings, She does so while he sleeps, but when he wakes up he snaps the strings. She persists and he tells her he can be bound with new ropes. She ties him up with new ropes while he sleeps and he snaps them too. She asks again and he says he can be bound if his locks are woven together. She weaves them together, but he undoes them when he awakes. Eventually, Samson tells Delilah that he will lose his strength with the loss of his hair. Delilah calls for a servant to shave Samson's locks, and he is captured by the Philistines, who blind him, take him to Gaza, imprisoned and put him to work grinding grain. He won redemption only in death when he regained his strength one final time to bring the temple of Dagon down on his tormentors. It eluded Franklin Roosevelt, Sir Malcolm Campbell and Errol Flynn. But now an explorer from Melton Mowbray could be on the trail of a multi-million pound hoard of gold, silver and jewellery stolen by pirates and buried on a treasure island. From the www.telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Jasper Copping a British expedition to the Pacific Treasure Island where pirates buried their plunder. Sean Whitehead is leading an archaeological expedition to Cocos Island, the supposed hiding place of the Treasure of Lima, one of the world's most fabled missing treasures. The hall, said to be worth £160 million, was stolen by a British trader Captain William Thompson in 1820 after he was entrusted to transport it from Peru to Mexico. He is said to have stashed his plunder on the Pacific Island from where it has never been recovered. An original inventory showed 113 gold religious statues, one a life-sized Virgin Mary, 200 chests of jewels, 273 swords with jeweled hilts, 1,000 diamonds, solid gold crowns, 150 chalices and hundreds of gold and silver bars. The site, created by some as the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's treasure island, is uninhabited and around 350 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, of which it is a part. It has also been designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site for its unspoilt environment and variety of wildlife, and it has taken around 18 months of negotiations with the authorities to secure permission to go there on an exploratory mission. Although there have been no official expeditions to the island for more than quarter of a century, Mr Whitehead will join an impressive line of notable adventurers and explorers who had been attracted by the lure of the Lima loot. They include Roosevelt, the American president from 1933 to 1945, who travelled there with friends in 1910, Campbell, the racing driver, who went there in the 1920s, and Flynn in the 1940s. Another explorer, August Gisler, a German, spent 19 years living on the island, hunting the treasure, but returned with just six gold coins. However, Mr Whitehead's team is equipped with technology that has never before been used on the island. He has also established the most likely spots around the island on which to focus his efforts. Mr Whitehead, who had previously led a project to explore uncharted shafts inside the Great Pyramid of Giza, said, Given the amount of treasure, it would have been too heavy to carry far from sea level, and stories suggest the use of caves. We can also rule out where others have looked, dug up and detected, like on the beaches. If it is there, it will be in a natural cave which was hidden by one of the many landslides that occur on the island. It is not a case of following a map and X-marking the spot. It is about using a bit of logic to establish the likelihood of some areas where it could be. The team's research will concentrate on the areas around three of the island's four bays, which have been most used by visitors. The team plan to use a small unmanned helicopter fitted with specialist cameras to fly above the nine-mile square island, which will enable them to make a computer-generated 3D map of the landscape. They will then use a snake-like robot that can be dragged across the parts of the island and using ground penetrating radar detect voids and cavities up to a depth of around 60 feet. This data will be added to the 3D map to identify any likely concealed caves. After this a team will use a specialist keyhole drill which can reach more than 100 feet to dig down into the cave. A probe camera can be sent down through the one-inch diameter hole. The 10-day expedition will also involve extensive archaeological, geological and ecological research and Mr Whitehead is at pains to stress they are not simply going there on a treasure hunt. The team of around 15 involves researchers from the University of Costa Rica and the Senckenberg Institute a natural history research organisation based in Germany. This is a scientific survey including archaeological, geological and biodiversity aspects, Mr Whitehead said. Unlike previous trips, we are not going to dig vast holes or do anything destructive at all. The real treasure of the island is its natural beauty. Anything else we find there is simply a bonus. The island which is said to have been the inspiration for Jurassic Park, the book and film about an island on which dinosaurs are recreated, is home to hundreds of unusual species. Dr. Einar Noblock, a German biologist who has visited the island on three previous occasions, is part of the team taking part, and said we have a very good relationship with the authorities and they trust us that this is not a simple treasure hunt. Dr. Noblock is also an author and has written a book about Cocos called The Secret of Treasure Island. She is planning to set up a museum dedicated to the island in Pantarinas on the Costa Rican mainland. Mr. Whitehead, based in Melton Mowbray, Leicestershire, is an engineer who has set up a company which supplies specialist electronic exploration equipment. The group are funding the expedition themselves although they are hoping a television company may help cover costs. They plan to travel after the end of the current rainy season, which finishes in November. The treasure could be worth at least 160 million pounds. If any of it is found, the team plans to pass it on to the Costa Rican authorities, which would be expected to pay a fee for its salvage. The treasure had been amassed by the Spanish authorities in Lima, in what is now Peru. But facing a revolt, the city's viceroy, Jose de la Serna, entrusted the riches to Captain Thompson for transport to Mexico, also a Spanish colony, and it was transferred to his ship, the Mary Deer. After leaving the port of Callao near Lima, Thompson and his crew killed the viceroy's six men and sailed to Cocos, where they buried the treasure. Shortly afterwards, they were apprehended by a Spanish warship All of the crew, bar Thompson and his first mate, were executed for piracy. The two said they would show the Spaniards where they had hidden the treasure in return for their lives, but after landing on Cocos, they escaped into the forest. They are said to have been picked up by a passing ship a year later, but without the treasure. Several early expeditions were mounted on the basis of claims by a man named John Keating, who was supposed to have befriended Thompson. On one trip, Keating was said to have retrieved some golden jewels from the treasure and also to have killed a fellow treasure hunter and left his body with the hoard. The Costa Rican authorities want to discourage treasure hunting on the island. They have permitted the latest expedition because of the scientific survey work involved. The document granting permission states that if any treasure is found, the team must immediately halt and notify the authorities. The treasure of Lima is not the only hall said to be hidden on the island. A further 350 tons of gold raided from Spanish ships by 19th century British sailor Captain Bennett Graham is also said to be there. While a Portuguese pirate Benito bloody sword Bonito also operating in the 19th century is said to have hidden gains there too. And from the www.guardian.co.uk website, an article by Dahlia Alberge. A mass grave in London reveals how a volcano caused global catastrophe. Scientists search for the explosive source of a disaster that wiped out almost a third of Londoners in 1258. When archaeologists discovered thousands of medieval skeletons in a mass burial pit in East London in the 1990s, they assumed they were 14th century victims of the Black Death, or the Great Famine of 1315-17. Now they have been astonished by a more explosive explanation, a cataclysmic volcano that had erupted a century earlier thousands of miles away in the tropics and wrought havoc on medieval Britons. Scientific evidence including radiocarbon dating of the bones and geological data from across the globe shows for the first time that mass fatalities in the 13th century were caused by one of the largest volcanic eruptions of the past 10,000 years. Such was the size of the eruption that its sulphurous gases would have released a stratospheric aerosol veil or dry fog that blocked out sunlight, altered atmospheric circulation patterns and cooled the Earth's surface. It caused crops to wither, bringing famine, pestilence and death. Math's deaths required capacious burial pits as recorded in contemporary accounts. In 1258 a monk reported The north wind prevailed for several months. Scarcely a small rare flower or shooting germ appeared, whence the hope of harvest was uncertain. Innumerable multitudes of poor people died, and their bodies were found lying all about, swollen from want. Nor did those who had homes dare to harbour the sick and dying for fear of infection. The pestilence was immense, insufferable, It attacked the poor particularly. In London alone, 15,000 of the poor perished. In England and elsewhere, thousands died. There does not seem to have been any explanation at the time. It was probably assumed to be a punishment from God. London's population at the time was around 50,000. So the loss of 15,000 would have radically changed the city. Surprisingly, perhaps, the volcano's exact location has yet to be established. Mexico, Ecuador, Indonesia are the most likely areas, according to volcanologists, who found evidence in ice cores from the Northern Hemisphere and Antarctic, and within a thick layer of ash from Lake Malawi sediments. The ice core sulphate concentration shows that it was up to eight times higher than Indonesia's Krakatoa eruption of 1883, one of the most catastrophic in history. Some 10,500 medieval skeletons were found at Spitalfields Market, the site of the Augustinian Priory and Hospital of St Mary Spital, and the remains suggest there may have been as many as 18,000. The excavation between 1991 and 2007 by the Museum of London Archaeology was the largest ever archaeological investigation in the capital. It was a member of that team, osteologist Don Walker, who discovered the link with a volcano. Volcanologist Bill Maguire said, This was the biggest eruption in historic times. It may have brought the temperatures down by four degrees Celsius. A huge amount. Today I found out there was once a 17-year-old girl who struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig back-to-back. And this article was written by Davin Hiskey. What's even more impressive about that was neither Ruth nor Gehrig managed to even get the bat on the ball when they swung. Ruth swung and missed twice before taking a called third strike. Gehrig swung and missed three times, striking out on just three pitches. Unfortunately for her, what she got for her efforts was to be promptly banned from major and minor league baseball by Commissioner Kinesaw Mountain Landis. The woman was Vernet Beatrice Jackie Mitchell, one of the first female professional baseball players in history. Mitchell's baseball life started out about the same time she was old enough to pick up a ball. Her father initially taught her to play baseball, but she got more instruction from a soon-to-be-famous neighbour. Seeing her interest in the game, and learning of her dream to someday play in major leagues, her neighbour, minor leaguer, and future MLB Hall of Famer, and the greatest strikeout picture of his era, Dazzy Vance, taught her a few tricks including supposedly how to throw what would become her signature pitch, a devastating sinker. Fast forward to the age of 17, and Mitchell was making a name for herself playing around with various teams, including striking out nine consecutive batters at one point. She drew the attention of Joe Engel, owner of the Chattanooga Lookouts, while she was attending a baseball school's pitching camp in Atlanta, Georgia, in March of 1931. He spotted her and signed her to a contract to play for the New York Yankees AA Minor League Baseball Club, The Lookouts. It was while with The Lookouts that she got a chance to face off with the game's best. The Chattanooga News of March 31, 1931, scouted her thus. She uses an odd side-armed delivery and puts both speed and curve on the ball. Her greatest asset, however, is control. She can place the ball where she pleases. And her knack at guessing the weakness of a batter is uncanny. She doesn't hope to enter the big show this season, but she believes that with careful training, she may soon be the first woman to pitch in the big leagues. After the previous scheduled exhibition game was rained out on April 2, 1931, Mitchell got her chance in front of 4,000 spectators, though few saw her as anything but a sideshow. The Yankees will meet a club here that has a girl pitcher named Jackie Mitchell, who has a swell change of pace and swings a mean lipstick, I suppose that in the next town the Yankees enter, they will find a squad that has a female impersonator in left field, a sword swallower at short, and a trained seal behind the plate. Times in the South are not only tough, but silly. And that came from the New York Daily News, April 2, 1931. The starting pitcher of the day was former Cardinal and Tiger Clyde Barfoot, he was removed after just two batters after giving up a double to Earl Coombs and a single to Lynn Larry. In came the Lefty Mitchell, whose extreme sidearm delivery made it particularly hard for lefties to hit off her. The first batter she faced was none other than the Sultan of Swat himself, Babe Ruth. The first pitch she threw him was high for a ball. The next two, though, Ruth swung and missed at. She then threw a sinker low and away that caught the edge of the strike zone, which he took for strike three. He reportedly had a few choice words for the umpire while walking away that were not meant for a lady's ears, giving his thoughts on the pitch being called a strike. Next up was Iron Horse, Lou Gehrig. She didn't mess around with him, throwing him three consecutive sinkers, with him swinging and missing at every one. The next batter, Tony Lazzari, fared better, though he didn't manage a hit. Instead, Mitchell ended up walking him, at which point she was pulled from the game. The Yankees would go on to win 14-4. After the game, Ruth stated, I don't know what's going to happen if they begin to let women in baseball. Of course, they will never make good. Why? Because they are too delicate. It would kill them to play ball every day. Apparently, Commissioner Landis felt the same way. Within a few days, he officially voided her contract and banned her from Major and Minor League Baseball, stating that baseball was too strenuous for women to play. Despite this individual banning, Major League Baseball wouldn't officially ban women until June of 1952, a ban that stood for 40 years until it was repealed when the Chicago White Sox drafted Kerry Schuller in the 43rd round of the draft for the 1993 season. Not everyone was quite so down on Mitchell's efforts. The New York Times had this to say after her performance against Ruth and Gehrig. Cynics may contend that on the diamond as elsewhere, it is place aux dames. Perhaps Miss Jackie hasn't quite enough on the ball yet to bewilder Ruth and Gehrig in a serious game. But there are no such sluggers in the Southern Association, and she may win laurels this season which cannot be ascribed to mere gallantry. The prospect grows gloomier for misogynists. Of course, she was never given the chance to show what she could develop into against the world's best, so no such gloomy prospect arose. After being unjustly kicked off the Yankees' AA Farm Club, Mitchell continued her professional career playing on various barnstorming teams, including the famed House of David team, famous for their long beards. Mitchell would sometimes wear a fake beard to match them. She quit baseball at the age of 23, though after becoming fed up with people ignoring the fact that she was a genuinely good lefty pitcher, and instead treating her like a sideshow, including once being asked to pitch from the back of a donkey in a match. And a couple of bonus factoids about Mitchell. After Jackie Mitchell retired, she went and began work at her father's optometry office. When the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League was formed during World War II, Mitchell was 29 years old at the time. She was asked to come out of retirement to pitch, but declined the offer. Mitchell was not actually the first female player to be signed to play in the minor leagues. The first was Lizzie Arlington, real name Elizabeth Stroud, in 1898. She played in one Class A Atlantic League game. Atlantic League president Ed Barrow had this to say about Lizzie's sole outing. Four or five innings, she had plenty of stuff and control. She knew all the fundamentals of the game, having been taught by fellow townsman, old Jake Stivitz, who pitched many years in the National League in the 1890s. She gave up six hits and three earned runs that game, which her team won 18-5. After Lizzie was done pitching, she switched to playing second base for the rest of her sole game in the minor leagues. On the other side of the game, she collected two hits at the plate. And from the www.worddetective.com, the origin of the word bent, B-E-N-T. Dear Word Detective, I've been wondering how bent, as in, he has a philosophical bent, came to be, as opposed to just calling it a bend. Can you offer anything? Dalton. Hmm. Hey, how about a nice cat? Everybody likes cats, and after a while they bring out your philosophical bent, even if you never thought you had one. There you'll be, sitting in your cold, dark house, impoverished by vet bills, shunned by friends who have just developed convenient allergies, with both your furniture and your future in tatters. At that moment when all seems lost, you'll pause, muse philosophically, and realise that you still have a prize more precious than gold. The knowledge that you have made one small furry creature very happy. But it just won a coin flip with you for the last can of fancy feast. Oh, you meant something useful about bent. Yep, no problemo. Bent in the sense that you use it in your example is simply a noun formed from the common verb to bend. In this sense, we use bent to mean mental inclination or tendency, disposition, propensity, bias. From the Oxford English Dictionary. As in, Henry was of a nuministic bent and spent every day collecting coins and bills. It was several years before the police discovered he was getting them from his neighbours' houses. As an adjective, bent in this sense means determined to follow a certain course of action or to pursue a certain goal. Despite the intense lightning, Trevor was bent on finishing the tennis game and eventually triumphed over his opponent, the late Victor Nubben of Dover. The story of Bent goes back to its Germanic root, which was band or bandagen. This root produced a number of other English words including band, bind, bond and bundle all of which carry the general sense of tying something up. And so at first did the English verb to bend. In Old English as benden and initially in English to bend meant to bind or constrain something very tightly, usually with a bend, the noun form then meaning bond, shackles, fetters, etc. The question that I'm sure has occurred to you by now because all my readers are of a logical bent, is, so how did this word, to bend, meaning tie up tightly, ever come to mean, to form into a curve? Good question. It appears that early in the words evolution in English, the sense of to bind tightly was applied to the process of stringing an archer's bow, which requires strength and results, of course, in the bow assuming a curved shape. Thus, to cause other things to take the curved shape of a strung bow became to bend them, and they were thenceforth described as bent, the past participle of to bend. This sense of bent was eventually broadened to include things that were of any arched, angular, or crooked shape, not just the gentle curve of a bow, and today, To bend can apply to any deviation of a thing from its usual axis, such as when we bend our knees to pick up something from the floor. Bend is also a perfectly fine noun, commonly used to mean a turn or fold in something, such as a bend in the river. Interestingly, the origin of to bend in stringing a bow gave us another sense of the word as well, To bend, meaning to direct one's thoughts, energies or actions towards something. This sense reflects an earlier sense of to bend, meaning to aim a weapon, reflecting the bending of a bow to fire an arrow. It is this directing one's thoughts and energies sense of the verb to bend that produced the noun bent in the sense of mental inclination or bias. The noun bend was also briefly used in the 16th century to mean a turn of mind or inclination, just as we use bent today. But that sense of bend eventually became obsolete and bent took over its job. The reasons bent won out over bend in meaning inclination are a bit hazy, but it seems that bent in this sense with its terminal T was formed on the model of other English nouns drawn from verbs of Latin or French origin. For example, to descend produced the noun descent, extend gave us extent, etc. So there's really no compelling logical reason why we use bent for inclination instead of bend. That's just the way it turned out. And today we speak of a politician's larcenous bent as he bends, the ethical rules. Sometimes life seems to happen at warp speed. But decisions, says Frank Partnoy, should not. When the financial market crashed in 2008, the former investment banker and corporate lawyer, now a professor of finance and law and co-director of the Center for Corporate and Securities Law at the University of San Diego, turned his attention to literature on decision-making. Much recent research about decisions helps us understand what we should do or how we should do it. But it says little about when, he says. From the www.smithsonianmag.com website, an article by Megan Gambino. Why procrastination is good for you. In his new book, *Wait: the Art and Science of Delay, Partnoy claims that when faced with a decision, we should assess how long we have to make it, and then wait until the last possible moment to do so. Should we take his advice on how to manage delay, we will live happier lives. The rest of this article is done as a series of questions and answers, the question being posed by Megan, and the answers, of course, being given by Frank. So the first question is... It is not surprising that the author of a book titled, Wait, is a self-described procrastinator. In what ways do you procrastinate? I procrastinate in just about every possible way, and always have. Since my earliest memories going back to when I first started going to elementary school and had these arguments with my mother, about making my bed. My mum would ask me to make my bed before going to school. I would say, no, because I didn't see the point of making my bed if I was just going to sleep in it again that night. She would say, well, we have guests coming over at six o'clock and they might come upstairs and look at your room. I said, I would make my bed when we know they are here. I want to see a car in the driveway. I want to hear a knock at the door. I know it will take me about one minute to make my bed. So at 5.59, if they are here, I will make my bed. I procrastinated through college and law school. When I went to work at Morgan Stanley, I was delighted to find that although the pace of the trading floor is frenetic, and people are very fast, there were lots of incredibly successful mentors of procrastination. Now I am an academic. As an academic, procrastination is practically a job requirement. If I were to say I would be submitting an academic paper by September the 1st, and I submitted it in August, people would question my character. It has certainly been drilled into us that procrastination is a bad thing. Yet you argue that we should embrace it. Why? Historically for human beings, procrastination has not been regarded as a bad thing. The Greeks and Romans generally regarded procrastination very highly. The wisest leaders embraced procrastination and would basically sit around and think and not do anything unless they absolutely had to. The idea that procrastination is bad really started in the puritanical era with Jonathan Edwards' sermon against procrastination And then the American embrace of, a stitch in time saves nine. And this sort of work ethic that required immediate and diligent action. But if you look at recent studies, managing delay is an important tool for human beings. People are more successful and happier when they manage delay. Procrastination is just a universal state of being for humans. We will always have more things to do than we can possibly do. So we will always be imposing some sort of unwarranted delay on some tasks. The question is not whether we are procrastinating. It is whether we are procrastinating well. When does it cross from good to bad? Some scientists have argued that there are two kinds of procrastination. Active Procrastination and Passive Procrastination. Active Procrastination means you realise that you are unduly delaying mowing the lawn or cleaning your closet, but you are doing something that is more valuable instead. Passive Procrastination is just sitting around on your sofa, not doing anything. That clearly is a problem. What made you want to take a closer look at the timing of decisions? I interviewed a number of former senior executives at Lehman Brothers and discovered a remarkable story. Lehman Brothers had arranged for a decision-making class in the fall of 2005 for its senior executives. It brought four dozen executives to the Palace Hotel on Madison Avenue and brought in leading decision researchers, including Max Bazerman from Harvard and Mazarin Banaji, a well-known psychologist. For the capstone lecture they brought in Malcolm Gladwell, who had just published Blink, a book that speaks to the benefits of making instantaneous decisions and that Gladwell sums up as a book about those first two seconds. Lehman's president Joe Gregory embraced this notion of going with your gut and deciding quickly and he passed copies of Blink out on the trading floor. The executives took this class and then hurriedly marched back to their headquarters and proceeded to make the worst snap decisions in the history of financial markets. I wanted to explore what was wrong with that lesson and to create something that would be the course that Wall Street should have taken and hopefully will take. You looked beyond business to decision making in sports, comedy, medicine, military strategy, even dating. What did you find? I was so surprised to find that this two-step process that I learned from arguing with my mother about making my bed is actually a process that is used by successful decision makers in all aspects of life and in all sorts of time frames. It is used by professional athletes at the level of milliseconds. It is used by the military at the level of minutes. It is used by professional dating services at the level of about an hour. Question one is, what is the longest amount of time I can take before doing this? What time world am I living in? Step two is, delay the response or the decision until the very last possible moment. If it is a year, wait 364 days. If it's an hour wait 59 minutes. For example a professional tennis player has about 500 milliseconds to return a serve. A tennis court is 78 feet baseline to baseline and professional tennis serves come in at well over 100 miles per hour. Most of us would say that a professional tennis player is better than an amateur because they are so fast. But in fact what I found And what the studies of super-fast athletes show is that they are better because they are slow. They are able to perfect their stroke and response to free up as much time possible between the actual serve of the ball and the last possible millisecond when they have to return it. The International Dating Service, It's Just Lunch, advocates that clients not look at photos. Because photos lead to snap reactions that take just milliseconds. It asks that they consciously not make judgments about a person when they first meet them. Instead, they tell clients to go to lunch, wait until the last possible moment, and then at the end of lunch, just answer one question. Would I like to go out on a second date with this person? In the same way, it frees up time for a tennis player to wait a few extra milliseconds. Someone on a date will make a better decision if they free up extra minutes to observe and process information. What else surprised you? Most people are taught that you should apologize right away. But I was surprised to find that in most cases, delayed apologies are more effective. If you've wronged a spouse or partner or colleague in some substantive, intentional way, they will want time to process the information about what you've done. If you acknowledge what you did and deal with the apology, then the wronged party has a chance to tell you how they feel in response, and your apology is much more meaningful. Do you have any practical advice for how people can learn to better manage delay? Just take a breath, take more pauses, stare off into the distance, ask yourself the first question of this two-step process. What is the maximum amount of time I have available to respond? When I get emails now, instead of responding right away, I ask myself this. It might seem rude, and it did feel rude at first, but the reality is if you respond to every email instantaneously, you are going to make your life much more difficult. If the email really doesn't have to be responded to for a week, I simply cut the information out of the email and paste it into my calendar for one week from today. I free up time today that I can spend on something else and I'll be unconsciously working on the question asked in the email for a week. How do we stand to benefit from your message? If we are going to resolve long-term issues like climate change and sustainability, and if we are going to preserve the innovative focus of private institutions, I think we need a shift in mindset, away from snap reactions towards delay. Innovation goes at a glacial pace and should go at a glacial pace. Epiphany stories are generally not true. Isaac Newton did not have an apple fall on his head. Thomas Edison didn't suddenly discover the light bulb. Tim Berners-Lee didn't suddenly invent the World Wide Web. If we are going to be able to resolve long-term problems, we need to create new structures where groups of people are given long periods of time without time pressure and can think in a think-tank-like way. We will give them a real deadline so they can't just dither, but I think we need to press our decision-making framework out of the 24-hour news cycle and out of the election cycle into a longer-term time frame of maybe a decade. What is your next big question? I am intrigued by epistemology and the question of how we know what we know and the limitations on knowledge. There is an idea circling around the back of my brain, but I am going to take the medicine I advise other people to take and wait, let it sit and brew. This interview series focuses on big thinkers. Without knowing whom I will interview next, only that he or she will be a big thinker in their field, what question do you have for my next interview subject? I would like to know how your subject knows what they know. What is it about their research and experience and background that leads them to a degree of certainty about their views? With what degree of confidence do they hold that idea? Is it 100%? Is it 99%? Is it 90%? From my last interviewee, evolutionary biologist Servi Gavrilitz, what would you like to have more opportunity to do or more time to do, if you had the chance. I would like to have more time to play golf, actually. I often have my best creative breakthroughs, to the extent I have them at all, on the golf course, when I have a period of five hours to be around grass and trees, with the straightforward but maddening task to occupy me. In the summer of 1987, the American swimmer Lynn Cox braved the frigid waters of the Bering Strait to swim from the United States to the Soviet Union. Twenty-five years on, now aged 55, she recalls how her actions in the waning days of the Cold War eased international tensions. From the www.bbc.co.uk, an article by Simon Watts. I wanted to open the border so we could become friends, says Cox. The difficulty was that no one believed it could happen. Her route between Little Diomede Island in the US state of Alaska and Big Diomede Island in the Soviet Union was just 4.3 kilometres. But it crossed the maritime border of two countries still locked in Cold War oppression. And the water was cold, very cold. There was this instant loss of breath, Cox recalls. The cold was like a huge vampire pulling the heat from my body. I looked down at my fingers and they were totally grey, like the hands of a cadaver. With the water temperature at 3.3 degrees Celsius, the only way for Cox, then 30 years old, to survive was to keep moving. I put my face in the water and started swimming as fast as I could. I was also looking at my shoulders to see if they were turning blue, because that would be really dangerous. Cox first had the idea of the Bering Strait swim in 1976, and spent years lobbying Soviet officials for permission to enter their waters. After being ignored at every turn, Cox finally decided to use every last penny of her savings to do her swim. On the eve of the swim there was still no word from Moscow and the military on both sides of the Cold War were jittery. We knew something was happening because the Soviets moved two ships the size of football fields up into the Bering Strait, Cox recalls. The indigenous Inuits freaked out so they called the US National Guard and they sent up jet fighters. Then the Soviets sent up MiGs to check out why the Americans were up there. And I was thinking that this was supposed to be about world peace. With 24 hours to go, permission came through from Moscow. President Gorbachev himself had seen a TV report about Cox's swim and, with the world's media watching, the Soviet leadership decided it would be too embarrassing to turn her back. On the morning of the 7th of August, Cox woke up to find the Bering Strait completely calm. But there was no sign of the Inuit who would guide her in their traditional kayaks. I'm all set to go and my crews are all set to go but they're not up and I'm freaking out says Cox. It all turned out that the Inuit had been up all night celebrating the prospect of seeing their relatives on Big Diomede Island for the first time in nearly 50 years. As they slept in, fog closed in and visibility dropped to 400 metres. We couldn't see anything, we didn't have radar, we had traditional canoes. Great Diomede is only 6.4 kilometres wide, so everyone was really concerned that I might just miss the island. As Cox started swimming, she was worried to see her support boats making constant changes of course. None of the Inuit was old enough to remember the route to Great Diomede, and their only navigational device was a rusty compass. In the end, one of the American journalists accompanying Cox intervened to put the expedition on the right bearing. Cox then heard the sound of a motor and slowly a Soviet launch appeared. I was elated when I saw the skiff emerge from the fog. Finally, the Russians are here, she says. On board was Vladimir Macmillan, a half-American journalist for the Soviet news agency TASS, who was jumping up and down, shouting, Lynn, don't stop now! Cox was heading for a cliff about 50 metres ahead, but with the fog clearing slightly, she could make out a Soviet delegation waiting further away on a beach. Macmillan wanted Cox to swim to the welcoming committee, But the American medical team urged her to take the easy option and swim to the cliff. I kept thinking, I'm cold. I would like to finish this swim. But if I don't touch somebody's hand, what have I done? She says. So she headed towards the Russians. The last 800 meters was the hardest part of the swim because of strong offshore currents. I really did wonder how far I could go. I really did see my fingers go gray. Inside I was evaluating, am I okay? Can I keep going? Can I do it? I had experts around me, but there was always the risk that you could go into cardiac arrest from hypothermia and it can happen really fast. So I was on the edge the whole time. The Soviet delegation came into view. Cox reached the shore, but it was so rocky she couldn't get out on her own. I extended my arm and two Russians in military uniform grabbed me, says Cox. I instantly felt this heat from their warm hands. One guy was putting his arm underneath me to steady me. People were throwing blankets and coats on top of me. I didn't understand anything at all, except they were saying, Welcome. At the last minute, the Soviets had sent a top-level delegation, including KGB officials and sports stars. They had even prepared a small beach party. They had set up tables on the beach for a picnic with samovars full of tea and little biscuits. They were ready to celebrate all afternoon. But I was standing there on the ice thinking, oh boy this is getting cold. Eventually the Soviets let Cox go inside a tent to recover. A Soviet doctor, Rita Zarakova, covered Cox with hot water bottles, putting her in a sleeping bag and then embraced her. For the American, the moment symbolised the entire trip. The whole idea was to have this human contact after so many years growing up afraid of the Soviets. And here was this person basically warming me up to get me back to life again, she says. The swim turned Cox into a Cold War celebrity in the United States and the Soviet Union. When President Gorbachev travelled to Washington to sign a nuclear weapons treaty later that year, He and President Reagan raised a glass to toast the swimmer. She proved by her courage how close to each other our peoples live, Gorbachev said. dating sites like eHarmony and OkCupid claim they can find you the perfect romantic match by using algorithms. These kinds of sites have catchy slogans like date smarter not harder, implying that they've finally perfected a scientific approach to matchmaking. Just answer a few questions and their super secret love science will find the person who is right for you from the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website, an article from their Paleo Future series, Mechanical Matchmaking, the science of love in the 1920s. While much of the science behind online dating sites has been called into question, that doesn't seem to dissuade us from wanting to make the messy and often frustrating world of romantic love into something Quantifiable. This idea, of course, is nothing new, and at least one futurist thinker of the early 20th century hoped that new technological developments might one day create the perfect matchmaking device. The April 1924 issue of Science and Invention magazine ran an article by Hugo Gernsbuck, the magazine's publisher, who examined the different scientific ways to determine if a marriage will succeed or fail. How much would the average man or woman give to know beforehand if his or her prospective married life is to be success or failure? At present, marriage is a lottery. It seems impossible to predict beforehand how your prospective mate will turn out in the future through certain fundamentals, which can easily be ascertained. One can be reasonably certain as to one's choice. We take extreme care in breeding horses, dogs and cats, but when we come to ourselves, we are extremely careless and do not use our heads nor the means that science puts in our hands for scientific breeding. There are certain basic tests which can be made today and which will give one a reasonable assurance of married happiness. In the article, Gernsbach explains four different tests that can be administered to a couple in order to determine scientifically whether a marriage will work. Number 1 – Physical Attraction Test According to Gernsbach, physical attraction is the single most important element for a successful marriage. He explains that in order to measure the level of a couple's physical attraction for one another, electrodes must be attached to each person's wrist, so that an electrical sphymograph can record their pulse. Then a chain is wrapped around their chests to measure breathing. And we quote. Around the chest of each is a chain, which is secured to a piece of spring, covered by a rubber hose. One end of the tube thus formed is sealed. The other connects to a manometer and also to a timbre supplied with a stylus. The stylus leaves a record on a moving paper tape showing the rate of respiration. Essentially, if your pulse rate rises and you breathe more quickly while embracing or kissing your partner, Gernsbach contends that this is scientific evidence of physical attraction. Test 2. The Sympathy Test. The sympathy test involves one of the partners watching the other go through something mildly traumatic, like having blood drawn. In the illustration shown below, the young woman watches her partner And if her muscular contractions and sudden inhalations, due to excitement, are wild enough, then she's supposed to be sufficiently sympathetic to him as a partner. Number three, the body odor test. Interestingly, Gernsbach complains that more marriages are probably wrecked by body odors than any other cause. During the body odour test, the couple is made to smell each other by one person being placed inside a large capsule with a hose coming out of the top. The hose is led to the nose of the other person and if the smells aren't found too objectionable again measured by devices strapped to the chest and wrist then the romantic pairing is deemed safe. Test number 4 The Nervous Disorder Test According to Gernsbach, it's important that at least one partner can be calm under pressure. The Nervous Disorder Test is perhaps the most amusing, in that it imagines a man, let's call him Professor Six Shooter, delivering a surprise gunshot in the air. The nervous reaction of both people is recorded on tape, and if they both are too startled, marriage should not take place. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little uneasy if my partner wasn't startled at the sound of a gunshot. And if you'd like to see some of the illustrations that go with this article, they're a little amusing, visit the show notes, episode 130, and the link to this article. If you'd like to try the test, then all you've got to do is whip off to your local hardware store, get some springs, hoses, wires, tubes bottles and a gun and it's all quite easy after that. The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth is provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. Remember, the show notes are also found at Origins website, www.origins.info. Thank you to everyone who has provided feedback at iTunes and other places on the internet. Your support and comments are greatly appreciated. Now to bring the podcast to a close, another song by that artist Sora who I have been featuring for the last few weeks. No particular reason apart from I really, really, really like her music. This one is called The Juniper. So until next time everyone, it's oh, bye for now. It spares, as winter,
1: it's here now, and you're not oh, the juniper See